five, four, three, two, one. Hi, this is Frank Darabont. Welcome to the Mist Commentary. I'm going to dive right into it. This set that's in the first shot of the movie is a two-wall set. It is patterned after the art studio of Drew Struzan, who is a very dear friend of mine and one of the great poster artists of all time. And for this little scene here, I borrowed a lot of his artwork. We reproduced it, of course, not the originals, but we're passing them off as originals here. You see the uh, poster art for The Thing, John Carpenter's film, Pan's Labyrinth. Guillermo del Toro's. And this particular painting here is obviously, to the fans of Stephen King, pretty obvious. It is the Dark Tower. So my idea was our artist here, played by Tom Jane, is painting a movie poster for a fictional Dark Tower film. I'll get back to Drew in a moment. This shot here was done on the same little two-wall set with a green screen, and all that wonderful storming was put in out there by Cafe FX, Everett Burrell, and those fine folks. Back to our little two-wall set here as the giant tree comes through the window propelled by some medieval-looking contraption concocted by Daryl Pritchett, who is our physical effects supervisor. That particular shot was done by Greg Nicotero, my good friend and second unit director on this film. What else do I want to tell you about that previous scene? Because those shots go by pretty quickly. Well, two things. It was a two-wall set because the big theme of this production was low-budget, low-budget, contained costs. This is a very an expensive film by contemporary standards. So working with Greg Melton, my other very dear friend, my production designer, we looked for the opportunities at all times to save money, cut costs. And I said, Greg, if I'm going to shoot this scene, I'll shoot it from two angles. Give me two walls. Don't build four walls because that will save us money if you don't. Ah. What choice do they have? You kidding? They could... Whip up some bad Photoshop poster in an afternoon. They do it all the time. Two big heads. Here we're at a location just outside of Shreveport in Louisiana, which was convincingly New England enough that when Stephen King first saw this movie, he leaned over to me and said, did you shoot this in, in Maine? I said, nope, it was Shreveport. There's a lovely lake there, and the people who own this beautiful old home allowed us to shoot there. We trashed it up for camera. Greg and his crew brought in that huge tree and laid it on its side and dug a hole as if it had been uprooted and thrust through the home. It was a good bit of effort to dress this as if a storm had hit. Holy crap! Billy. Sorry, Ma, but you just got it. Come, come on. I said to get back to Drew Struzan, the artist that I had mentioned at the very top of the film in that first shot with all his fantastic artwork on the walls. Folks, you got to check him out. Go to DrewStruzan.com, check out his website, buy his books. He is truly one of the legendary artists. And on the supplement of this DVD, we have a little documentary all about him, a little tribute to Drew, so check that out too. Here's another little set piece created by Greg Melton. There's a lot of real debris floating there in the water, but also it's been enhanced digitally by, again, Cafe FX. They added the little roof, and they beefed up the tree, and they just made the shot look a lot more convincing than what we were able to shoot there on the day. Look at that. And here's a plate that we shot there, same place, but the mountains and the mist are digital. 
Again, there's a lot of effects work that went into the movie, and I'll be pointing that stuff out because the folks who did it certainly deserve a, a heck of a lot of credit, particularly in view of how fast we were working and how limited the resources of the budget were. Why don't you take uh, Billy, uh, get him dressed. I'll take him to town with me. This lovely actress here is Kelly Collins Lintz. She's a local actress that we hired there. And the fellow here, Tom Jane, the star of the movie, is a fellow I've wanted to work with for just years and years. I've always been a fan of his work. And it was really a great pleasure. I'd known him somewhat socially prior to this. He's the first actor that I sent the script to. And I was very happy that he wanted to make this movie. And the experience of working with him was everything I'd hoped it would be. It was really lovely. Andre Brower, a force of nature, one of the great actors alive right now, this man, and a complete pleasure to work with. I was so honored that he came to do this movie, and he added something to the film that is really unique and unreplaceable, I think. Yeah, and? Nothing. Just think we should trade insurance info. This house where we're shooting is literally just a few houses down from the other house that we had. So it is, in fact, the neighboring house. We were within walking distance of it, so we just moved our cameras and kept rolling. 1980. That poor Mercedes right there is... We got it from a junkyard. We didn't? My co-producer, Denise Huth, is in the booth here, and she tells me it wasn't from a junkyard, so we just planted a microphone in front of her. Denise, tell us what that was. We, and speaking of the mic. It was actually, thank you. It was actually a rental. It had been wrecked. It hadn't been in a fender bender, so it needed some help, but we were not supposed to trash it further. And I'm not exactly sure where the breakdown in communication happened, but the guys who actually dressed it did not clearly not know this, or if they did know, they didn't care, but I'm going with they didn't know. And uh, the tree branches, they just threw them on there, and we ended up ripping the upholstery and denting the car and scratching the paint, and our line producer, co-producer, Randy Richmond, had to deal with a couple thousand dollars in bills to repair that vehicle back to its pre-movie look. So that was our greatest budgetary sin, was we had to pay a little extra for the car. It was our greatest, <laughs> but it, we didn't have that many. We did pretty good, but yeah, that was a big fuck up. <laughs> okay. okay, these are just little stories of the wacky challenges we face and the things we don't tell you while we're uh, filming. Exactly, and the things they don't tell me. Daddy, look. Uh, you guys from the base from up the mountain. Uh huh. The Arrowhead Project. Well, you're a local. Any idea what they do up there? Missile defense research, you know, I'm sure you... We're here on a military base, actually, near Shreveport in Louisiana. It was a mostly deactivated military base, but a fantastic location for us for some of these exteriors, especially for this driving stuff, because it was just very rural-looking roads and a lot of trees and a lot of woods, and we were able to get in there. I was crouched in the back with my little headphones on every time we were in this car. And all I had to do was duck and make sure I didn't get in the lens, especially when it whip-panned around following those military vehicles. Now, this location here is in Vivian, Louisiana. You're about to see it, the nice big market. This is a real market that we found in Vivian. We were so taken with it, Greg Melton and I, my production designer, that we decided to match our stage set exactly to this existing, old, very rural-looking supermarket. Something built in the early 60s. 
one of the things that we did is we built this pharmacy facade. We're now inside what is supposedly a pharmacy looking out at him on the phone as he walks toward the food house. That sign we added, by the way. But this pharmacy was really a facade. It was a three-wall facade that we planted right in the parking lot there and a, a very convincing illusion. On the cut, as Tom walks from the pharmacy on the real location in the real parking lot, he walks into this shot, which is our stage set. And this was built at Stageworks right in Shreveport, right in the heart of Shreveport. There are these sound stages, which worked out fantastically well for us. Everybody's stocking up. Been like this since we opened. Crap, you're there. Eh, I was a little pissed off this morning. Morning, Mrs. Carmody. The set was, it's probably a little complex to describe it. That thing uh, you see behind Marsha Gay Harden outside, what looks like the outside, is actually a giant photograph of what was outside the real supermarket, which is where we shot the exterior stuff. You do a lot of math along these lines when you're making a movie, you know. Okay, if we grab this shot here, combine it with this interior here, you cut them together the right way, and it winds up being a very, very convincing illusion. Here we're on this wonderful supermarket interior set designed by Greg Melton, built by him and his crew. And this entire set went up in about six weeks flat. It was amazing, this achievement of putting this supermarket up. It was an entire supermarket with the registers, with the windows looking out onto a fake parking lot on the soundstage. It's a very old-school illusion. What you're seeing right now behind the soldiers is actually a giant photograph. It was a 20-foot by 60-foot digital still photograph we took on the location, blew it up, hung it out there, and so a lot of the earlier stuff here in the movie, before the mist rolls in, you're really looking at that photograph. There are a few shots looking out those windows that we shot on the real location to lend it greater credibility. And I'll point those out to you, too. But all this stuff was shot on a soundstage and really very convincing. Ouch. Sorry to hear that. The military police jeep coming up, that was shot on the real location just as a clean point of view. You can even see cars going by in the background, as was this shot here of the MP looking around. And when you cut that into the sequence that was shot on the stage, because everything else here was, it really fools the eye. And adding just those few little shots from reality of the real location into this stage set with the giant still photograph outside the windows really creates a very pleasing mix. And I've always really enjoyed this sort of creating the illusion rabbit out of the hat part of what we do. I just love that part of it. Here's a couple of more shots of the cars going by that were shot on the real location, the real street outside the market, intercut with all the stuff of these folks here reacting inside the supermarket. And they were reacting probably to me shouting out, okay, the cars are going by now. We probably had somebody out there with a flag or something running by just to give everybody an eye Corey. line. Oh, was it Corey? Always okay. Corey. <laughs> it's always Corey. Corey Pritchett, who works with his dad, Daryl in the physical effects department of the movie, and we'll talk about that later. There's that digital photo again right behind the MP as he's walking toward the front of the store. Yeah, I was shouting a lot of instructions here. Uh, we had a Mr. Mike and some speakers set up in the market so that I could, from the monitors, give instructions, give directions. 
give people cues as they happen, what they're supposed to be seeing, and doing it on speakers with so many people in the shot was necessary. Now here we cut back to our real location. There's the parking lot. There's Jeff DeMunn, one of my all-time favorite actors. There's Alexa Davalos, fantastic young actress, on our stage set, reacting. Here we are on the real location, real location, and on the cut. Ah, we're on the stage. I love that. <laughs> I get a giddy, silly thing. When you're in the editing room and you cut something like that and it just flows so seamlessly... But on the set, directing a sequence like this, you have to keep everybody oriented. You have to have all these moments in your head and communicate them to all of these people. What's expected, what's happening, because they're reacting to nothing in these shots except my instructions. I'm getting to my car. Mister! Here's a big shot coming up. It's a big hero shot of the mist swallowing the parking lot. Gorgeous shot here. Again, done by visual effects uh, geniuses at Cafe FX. By the way, to the right of the screen here as he runs to the car, there's our fake pharmacy facade that we built there in the parking lot. Now, these missed shots here, these CGI shots, were very challenging because as Everett Burrell, our VFX supervisor, pointed out, the toughest thing to do digitally is amorphous shapes. Here's a green screen shot of the front of the window. They added, again, a digital effect of the mist kind of taking over. It's a pollution cloud of mills. And from this point on, we go very old school with the effects. Here's our set. Here's a big wide shot. People staring out at a soundstage filled with mist. And that mist was provided by Daryl Pritchett, our physical effects supervisor. Now here's the here's the grand earthquake scene. And this was a lot of verve and panache and fun acting and stuff dropping and guys tossing things off ladders and the camera shaking. Those lights up there that are swinging are swinging on monofilament. It's a very old school, almost like an old Star Trek episode kind of earthquake because we certainly had no money to put this set on a gimbal or really shake things around, so we had to simulate everything. We were shaking shelves in the foreground. We were dropping debris, swinging those lights, and I was kind of delighted with how it turned out. I thought it was a really pretty convincing earthquake considering how low budget we were. And the audiences who were watching it, I remember in the theater, seemed pretty convinced too. So I was very pleased about that. One of the fun things about having shot that scene is my production sound mixer, Paul Ledford, came up to me before we shot this sequence and he said, you know, I have this huge earthquake rumble recording. Would you like me to bring in some giant bass speakers and actually play this sound effect on the set for everybody who's supposed to react to it. And I said, that's a great idea, but let's not tell them we're going to do it. So that really was the first take. We pretty much only did one take. We did a few other little pickup shots, but kind of for the main body of the earthquake, that was really a one-take deal. And when it started, we cued it with that giant earthquake rumble, and it was a shocking sound on the set. Everybody jumped, and everybody really got into it. I think they, they really enjoyed being surprised and a little scared by that sound on the set. It really added some energy to it, and it really, I think, helped sell it. I'm supposed to be watching him, you know? I told him I'd only be gone a few minutes. Now, this actress here who's on screen is doing an absolutely brilliant job. She was a local actress that I hired. I believe she lives in Dallas. Her name is Melissa McBride, and she did such a great job in this scene, 
playing this to everybody who's watching her. I mean, look at the crowd she's playing to. In between takes, I had my most experienced actors coming up to me and whispering in my ear saying, wow, this woman's awesome. Where'd you find her? Well, it was really just luck because she was on the taped auditions given to us by the local casting director, one of many. And she had come in to read for a one or two line little part, but I thought she was so good. I asked them to have her back to read for this part to see how she would do. And she really nailed it. The audition was thrilling. But what she did on the set was even more thrilling. Everybody was so captivated by her work that when she was done, when we were done with this part of the scene and I called a cut, everybody, the whole store burst into applause. The cast, the crew, the extras, sustained applause. Melissa was very moved. <laughs> it was a great moment because it was just an outpouring of approval and affection for somebody who had done such a good job. And it was a very spontaneous gesture as well. By the way, when I say local casting or local actor, that doesn't necessarily mean from Shreveport, but really denotes the region of the country that you're shooting in. So when I say he or she was a local actor, it's really from the region of the southern states, at least as far as this film is concerned, because we're shooting in Shreveport, Louisiana, for the record. And we'll get into that again soon. Okay, let's start cleaning up, okay? Uh, get the spilled bottles, broken glass, stuff like that. Aisle three has medical supplies. Okay. Uh, here's little Nathan Gamble. We're going to talk about him a lot, I think, in this movie. I'm going to talk about all my actors. Obviously, there's been a lot of setup in getting you into the sets, the locations, etc., etc. We'll get back to those, too. But, boy, I had a wonderful cast. We're going to talk about every single one of them. Nathan Gamble, I saw him in Babel, recommended to me by Deb Aquila, my casting director. And he is a really superbly talented young man. He's only nine years old. He's doing some really sophisticated work in this movie. In fact, one of the scenes that come later is, I think, my favorite scene in the movie. It's between Nathan and Tom Jane. Billy is begging his dad not to go to the pharmacy. I think it's my favorite scene in the movie, but we'll talk about that then. I was so delighted to get Nathan on board this project and to see what wonderful work he did because it's really hard to find a kid actor who is real. And he was really one of the nicest young men, and he had the nicest family. All his family were so lovely and level-headed and supportive, and I wish my family growing up had been like that. But we won't get into that because this is not a therapist's couch. No. <laughs> anyway, I don't, know where, I don't know where Nathan gets his talent, but it's clearly being encouraged and nurtured in a very positive way by his family, and they should be very proud of him. The way he ran in here, never seen him like that. I need something to cover my boy up. Any blankets? Furniture pads. Loading dock. Gonna keep checking on people. If you need anything, just holler. Well, you see all the stuff lying around on the floors, all the stuff on the shelves on this market set. It really reminds me, again, back to the challenge of having created this market from the floor up in six weeks. Greg Melton, my production designer, my very dear friend, I went to high school with, is now a top production designer. Just stocking the shelves, and you imagine the challenge that this was of getting product from all over the region, a lot of off-brands here, not necessarily national brands, and getting all this stuff donated to the production by various manufacturers, etc. Our prop master, Maureen Farley, who's a genius in her field, pulled a lot of strings to get this product in, and pallets and pallets of it would come in. Somebody sent us five pallets of pickle jars, and we couldn't use most of them. 
But most of the stuff that we had donated for the movie, we were able to turn around and donate to homeless shelters and food banks afterwards. But it wound up being a very convincing set and really an extraordinary achievement considering that it was a six-week build and a six-week dress. We prepped the movie in six weeks, folks. I've never prepped a movie in less than five months. This was part of the spirit of this movie. Get in, do it, don't overthink it, don't second-guess, do it fast, do it loose. And that's pretty much the way it went. And it was really fun, actually, I have to say shooting like that. But we'll talk about that some more here. We've transitioned from our market to the loading dock here, which was a smaller set built on the soundstage next door. And here's Lori Holden, one of my favorite actresses. She was my leading lady in The Majestic, which if you haven't seen, you should. How's that for a shameless plug? Shameless. Oh, dear God. And she is going to be in the upcoming final season of The Shield in a major role. I just think she's a fantastic actress, and we'll talk about her a little bit more, too, later on. We're back into the loading dock here. This set was so convincing that I remember one of our co-producers, who shall go nameless, not Denise, who's here in the room. Thank you. You can read the credits. You'll figure out who. Walked in and actually thought this was a real loading dock that we had magically found there on the stage. <laughs> and she's not a dumb person. She's actually a tremendously smart person. Very smart person. Very smart. But didn't quite put two and two together here until we pointed it out to her. She was probably a little jet-lagged, too. I yes, mean, very much so. Yeah. Also, in her defense, this facility, the Stageworks facility in Shreveport, wasn't originally built as sound stages. This was originally... Their convention center, this is their old, disused convention center, so the notion that there might be a loading dock in this facility wasn't that crazy. Some very smart people decided to take the old convention center right in the heart of Shreveport and convert it to sound stages. It proved to be a fantastic facility for us and has attracted quite a lot of production to Shreveport now, lately. Before the lights went out or uh, after? Here comes Chris Owen entering the shot, who's... Uh, Terrific young actor. Has a huge fan following, a huge fan base from the American Pie movie. The Shermanator. The Shermanator. I had no idea when I hired him. He was just a really interesting actor on the audition tape, and I thought, wow, he'd make a great norm. But as it turned out, we had a little bit of a fan excitement over the fact that he was playing this part. Now, Chris really did a very challenging thing in this movie. It was an incredibly physical thing, which is the scene coming up after this one. It's our first big effects sequence. And, yeah, it was really physically challenging because we were jerking them around on cables for a few days there. But we'll get into that later. Right now, let's get a little bit aesthetic, shall we? I love the way this movie is shot. I love the energy of it. I love the handheld feel of it. And you're kind of seeing that aesthetic in action right now here in a nice way. Part of shooting a movie this fast was embracing the ragged edges of what I call this jazzier style than I've ever employed before as a filmmaker. My films have tended to be rather painterly and very carefully thought out and very carefully shot. Well, this film was an opportunity for me to throw all that out the window and put aside all my technique that I developed and just completely embrace a different way of doing things something that was very guerrilla filmmaking in its nature and very handheld 
almost a little bit of a documentary style. It's the kind of thing that I've never done before. And I knew we had to do that in order to, uh, to make the movie on the schedule and the budget that we had. And it worked out really fantastically. The lighting in this scene is really interesting because pretty much, I mean, there's a little pockets of light that were set, but mostly a lot of this scene was lit by flashlights, either that the actors were holding. You can see they're flashing lights in each other's faces. <laughs> that was really part of the reality of the scene. Down below frame, there are some electricians bouncing flashlights off of white cards, etc., to kick up a little bit of extra light. But we wanted to do this in a very kind of loose way and see what happened, see what the flashlights gave us. And it really gave us a great look because it really feels real. And it was in pursuit of that documentary kind of feel that we were trying to get into the movie, that sort of grainy, it's happening now kind of uh, texture. Here there's a problem they can solve. Goddamn gonna solve it. Ready, kid? Let's rock. Norm, come on. Don't, man. It's a mistake. Pussy. Right now we're shifting into this big effects scene that I told you about. Is this amazing little thing that Daryl Pritchett provided, which is this mist that kind of is hovering outside the door but not really spilling into the room and spoiling our shot. He had this very interesting system set up. It was a lot of trial and error to get it set up during prep, but once he had it working, it worked like a charm. It had to do with temperature in the room and air pressure, and the mist that was outside that loading dock was kind of in a tented environment to contain it. And if too much mist was coming in, he'd change the temperature in the room, and it would wind up pushing it out. I mean, he really figured this thing out to a science. It was really quite wonderful. Here's Chris Owen acting his ass off while the tentacles are getting him. Some wonderful CGI work, again, from Cafe FX. This is what I was talking about when I was saying this is an incredibly challenging sequence. I know it only takes a few minutes on screen, but you can shoot something like this for days. The physical efforts that the actors are going through here is pretty extreme because we've got... Chris Owen, with a, there's a cable on his leg, and they're thrashing around, and I've got guys outside pulling him, and the guys inside with him in the scene are trying to restrain him from being pulled out. It's just a tremendous amount of effort, and I just love my actors because there was not really a word of complaint, even though I was really putting them through the paces. Even when I would just show somebody what I wanted and get in there in between takes, it would exhaust me. These guys were doing it for days. Tom, by the way, had the flu here and nonetheless was giving it his all. I think that this sequence really was our first week of filming, was it not? Yeah, it definitely was. Yeah. And so this was my first big experience with a lot of imaginary stuff in the shot. I'd certainly done some effects before, but not to this degree. Not where everyone had to pretend that what they were looking at was actually there but to be acting with thin air, really. Knowing that then the CG artists later on would be putting this stuff in and having to kind of trust that that was all going to work out. It's a very odd feeling shooting people running around and screaming and reacting to thin air. I know it's an odd sensation for the actors, certainly. I remember at one point during this 
sequence when we were shooting, I looked over at Toby Jones in between takes, and he was just sitting on a bag of dog food with this bemused smile on his face. I said, what's going on? He said, I have no idea what's going on. (laughs) I'm just doing what you tell me. (laughs) And, yeah, your actors have to trust you, and they have to trust that the effects people will give you what you need as well. see the palette falling over there's a good example of interactivity whenever you can make something real happen on the set like this axe hit here tom was actually smashing this little thing filled with goo so every time you see the goo spurt up that's real that happened on the set and when you make the digital creature or the digital element interactive with a real element like it knocks it over or it pulls it across the floor or something happens that's real it just helps sell the illusion all the more so we were always looking for the opportunities where we could do that by the way when i say that there was an actually creature on the set that's largely true however we did have reference pieces provided by my dear friend greg nicotero of knb and his shop We had our creatures actually sculpted. We had a tentacle on this set that we could show the actors, rehearse with, so they can kind of get used to what it felt like and what the size of it was and get a picture of it in their heads. And that really helped. There's some really great acting going on here, so I'm going to shift gears back into that for just a moment. We've got plenty of time to talk about effects, but what my actors are doing here are is just fantastic. Let me introduce Toby Jones, really, ladies and gentlemen. This fellow who plays Ollie, who's crouching down right now, a fantastic actor. I think his Ollie is just so good in this film. He's not an actor that I was familiar with prior to casting him in this film. My casting director, Deb Aquila, was a huge fan of his and was really championing his doing this role. And she said to me, Frank, you have to go home. You will have to watch Infamous and The Painted Veil. And Toby really leapt off the screen on both, and we invited him to come do this part, and luckily he was able to do it. Like every actor in the movie, he was a complete, wonderful, great pleasure and a total pro, and I just can't say enough about him. little bit of trivia, though, for the geeks out there. His dad is Freddie Jones, the great British character actor, who played Mr. Bites in The Elephant Man and hundreds of other roles in his career. And the very first time I met Toby, he mentioned this, and I I geeked out on him because I'm a big fan of his dad's. And Toby was surprised I even knew his dad's work. But I've been a fan for a long, long time. Since we're on actors, I'd love to talk about Tom Jane. I'm not sure with me babbling here you could see the work he was doing in this scene. But holy Toledo, I just love the work that Tom Jane did in this movie. He so rose to my hopes and, in fact, in some way exceeded my expectations. I always knew he was capable of this kind of work, and boy, did he prove it. That fantastic reaction he has right after the fist fight, where it all just sort of overwhelms him, is some very moving, very real stuff, and I'm really, really proud of him. And by the way, I mentioned that he and I had been socially acquainted prior to this movie, And I always liked him. But during the process of this movie, we really forged a pretty tight partnership, a pretty tight friendship. 
throughout the filming. He was really a partner to me in many ways. You know, the rest of the cast always looks to the lead to get a little bit of inspiration. They want to see how committed that guy is, and Tom couldn't have been more committed. Every other actor joined him in that commitment, and it was a tremendous ensemble and a great pleasure to direct all these folks. Perhaps a good time here to mention my costume designer, Gigi Melton, who is married to my production designer, Greg Melton. I've known them both since high school. She did a fantastic job on this movie. Most movies have a lot of costume changes. You'll notice this one doesn't because they're stuck in this market for the entire time. And this T-shirt here is probably the only costume change in the entire movie. Now, I'd like to point out an actor here as Tom joins the huddle. He's the first guy who speaks here. Hey, look. I'm sorry about Norm. Me too. I mean, I and that like... fellow there on the left in the blue hat, that's Bill Sadler. Love to talk about him, too. Bill is a buddy and a colleague going back all the way to Shawshank. I think one of the most inspired and interesting character actors alive, along with Jeffrey DeMunn, who's also in this movie. I'll point him out later. Those who know Bill Sadler know that he was in Shawshank Redemption and also in The Green Mile. He's a fellow I love to work with again and again. Actors like Bill and actors like Jeff DeMunn lend a credibility and a texture and a character and a flavor to a movie that is really irreplaceable. They make a tremendous contribution to the tone of the film. For me, it's never been just about the leads. It's also about the people around and surrounding the leads. I think they're just as significant to the final movie. Now, here we see Andre Brower, force of nature. <laughs> Watch this guy's performance. This was electrifying stuff to shoot on the set because Andre didn't hesitate. I mean, he brought all his skills to bear. Everybody was flabbergasted. I mentioned how Tom would inspire everybody. Every actor took turns inspiring the other actors. Nobody came to this movie with their B game. Everybody came with their A game. So you would see the energy on the set explode when a certain actor had his moment, like here Andre has his. Everybody just went, whoa. And it just helped propel everybody else. And then later on, when Marsha would have her moment, everybody would do the same thing. When Lori Holden had her moment, you know, everybody... It's like watching a great basketball team play an infallible game. They're always handing off the ball to one another. They're always there for one another, and they're always pushing each other to greater heights. And that's a fantastic, fantastic feeling for a director. It's having allies on the set who are your cast, who are making the same movie you are and are there to support each other, and also you, your vision of the film as a director. And you're mining gold when that happens. I love a number of things about this scene, about this moment. I particularly, well, I love the way the intensity develops between these two guys. It's very intense. And I loved directing a scene like this because my other films tended to be a little gentler in those moments. You know, it wasn't this direct and this angry. And that was pretty cool. But I, I love the subtext that Andre Brower brought to his role and infused into this scene. You really get the sense. Well, he layered in a little bit of a racial subtext as well, which everybody on the set went, wow, that's really discomforting, you know. You really get the sense that this man grew up victimized in many ways, and he's become this incredibly successful person in life. He's really earned what he's got, but he's still got that chip on his shoulder, the kid who got picked on. 
because of his race, because of whatever reason. And the fact that he worked that subtext in to this role really elevates, again, elevates what's there on the page. By the time it gets to the screen, it's elevated it to a very real place. And a great actor will do that. A great actor will find those subtextual moments and weave them in. And because of that, the character, I feel, got a lot more real the way Andre played it. Now, the fellow who just entered the scene, the store manager, Bud, speaking of great supporting actors in the supporting cast, I want to mention Rob Trevelier, who's playing Bud here. He was a fella, another bit of local casting. I know he'd been an actor in New York and L.A., but he lives in Texas now, I think. And I had seen hundreds of guys reading for this role, Bud, who's chewing out Ollie on screen at the moment. And he was, I think, next to the last one they had on the tape. And I took one look at him and I said, OK, that's Bud. What's absolutely a great pleasure is that he came in and became such an integral part of the ensemble cast here. His role wound up being more significant on screen than it ever had been on page. Another hallmark of a great actor. He just became an important part of the texture of the movie overall. <sighs> OK. This is how it is. Now, uh... I don't know what this mist is. This is a great time, I think, to shift into the subject of camera work. The whole technique of how this film was shot was a very big departure for me. People who know my previous work know that my camera work tends to be very steady, very thought out in advance, very carefully placed camera movements, very carefully placed frames. As I said before, earlier in the commentary, I wanted to throw that, all that technique out. I think it's great to, on occasion, just shake it up. Just shake up everything that you know and try on a whole different way of doing something. Try on a whole different suit of clothes. And you'll notice what a documentary kind of handheld, ragged, and at times aggressive style of camera work this is. Now, I have to bring up Ron Schmidt, who is my cinematographer. You have to have a DP who really knows how to light for this kind of stuff. Start there, and you really need to have some brilliant camera operators. In this case, Billy Gearhart and Richard Cantu, and I cannot praise them enough or stress highly enough how important they were to the process of making this movie. I'll get back to that in just a moment, because coming up here, yeah, there it is. There's a wonderful tentacle tip here crafted by, again, my buddy Greg Nicotero, K&B. Very old school, very cable operated, very kind of reminds me of Cronenberg's The Fly kind of special effect. Combined then with a, a bit of CGI layering when it starts to dissolve, brought to us by the fine folks at Cafe FX. And this winds up being a pretty good example of the teamwork between the two departments, between physical makeup effects and CGI digital computer effects, working together. Now here you have a nice view of our fabulous market set. I wanted to give you sort of a mental picture of how this laid out on the soundstage because I found it kind of interesting. Half of the soundstage was the market set and the interior the other half of the stage was what we call the mist tank, which is what we're in right now. You see it on the screen. It looks like we're in a parking lot moving up toward the windows. We had the two halves of the soundstage sealed off. We had long plastic drapes on either side of the set to keep the mist from spilling onto the market side. So we wouldn't have to work in it whenever we were actually on the market set. And we'd fill the mist part 
up every morning in about 15 minutes. It'd fill it with mist. So if you were standing there at the windows looking out, it looked like you were looking out at a mist world. It was a very clever solution, I think, and allowed the cast and crew not to have to work in the mist all the time. Well, this close-up here is a great moment to discuss Marsha Gay Harden, who is one of the crown jewels of our movie. Her performance as Mrs. Carmody, one of Steve King's great literary villains, is just indelible. She is magnificent, I think. And I was so lucky that she came and did this movie because this role I always knew would be very problematic or potentially problematic because it's such an extreme role. It's hard to play an extreme character and play it real. And I knew I needed an actor of enormous caliber to be able to pull it off, make it real, and still hit those extreme characteristics, the over-the-top moments, and still make you believe that you're looking at a real person. You need an actress like Marsha Gay Harden with those kind of chops to pull it off. Which is a pretty good segue into why this scene exists. This was not in Stephen King's original story. It's a scene that I added to the script and to the movie. And it was also in furtherance of making Mrs. Carmody a more real character, a less over-the-top villain, and motivating her properly. I added this entire prayer and this confrontation with Amanda in the bathroom really in an effort to get some insight into Mrs. Carmody's motives that she, like everybody else in the store, is driven by fear and by panic. And one thing I said to her is this is our opportunity to show the audience that Mrs. Carmody, if you were to ask her, thinks she's the hero of the movie. She thinks she's going to save the day and do the right thing, as unhinged and misguided as her actions become. And she was really into this part. (laughs) And I loved that she came up to the set when she came to Shreveport she had her little there was a book she was carrying it was what was it biblical revelations revelations for dummies basically so she could get behind the character's head and she's a marvelous actress and I've been a fan of hers for many years and was very honored to work with her she won the Academy Award for Pollock Best Supporting Actress was nominated same category for Mystic River and is really like taking a Ferrari for a drive as an actor on the set, just like Andre Brower. They are, by the way, very old friends going back years. I believe that they met in an acting class when they were youngsters. I may have that information wrong, but I do believe they took classes together back in New York. I do know that they spoke when she first was offered the role of Mrs. Carmody, and obviously she's never done a horror film before, and she called Andre to talk about the script. That's right, and Marsha credits Andre with encouraging her to take the role and view it as an actor's piece and not just a monster movie. Andre never had a moment of doubt about this movie. He rocks, and he never had a moment of doubt about this. He just had total belief in this movie, which delighted me because reading it on the page, it could turn into a cheese fest. It could be an over. They had the two hardest roles. They and they had the two hardest roles. They had the most difficult roles to convince you Mm -hmm. that they are real people, appropriately motivated, and of course they pulled it off in enormous grand style. But I love that Andre never really had a moment of doubt. He just, he believed Well, you in never it. even met him until he flew down for his wardrobe fitting. We offered him the role and he accepted it, and we were sitting around going, holy crap, we got Andre Brower. We got Andre Brower, wow. Yes, actually, Andre, Andre's agent called us, said, Andre's read your script and really likes this role, and would you be interested in him? And I said, we are talking, of course, of the great Andre Brower, the guy I saw in Glory and was blown away by years ago. That Andre Brower? Yeah, sure. I'd love for him to play this part. And boom, it was that easy. And I remember when we were prepping in Shreveport, 
he was going from one set to another or something, and he stopped in that week for wardrobe fittings and also to meet me. This was right before we started shooting. And we went out, just the two of us, and had dinner just to get to know each other. And we had a wonderful dinner, and we talked all kinds of stuff. And I have to give him credit for something here. There used to be, in my original draft, there used to be an opening sequence to this movie that was kind of a fun, more science fiction-y... I had in mind the tone of an old Outer Limits episode because I grew up loving those. There's a scene in a military lab where this accident occurs and the mist is released. And I always thought it would be, well, A, fun to shoot, but B, also maybe helpful for the audience to know where this thing came from. And as we were having dinner discussing the movie, Andre took this wonderful pause, looked at me and said, out of the blue, you think you need that opening scene in the movie? And I said, well... Gee, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it. But I started to think about it after that night. And within a week or... Days. Yeah, within days, actually. Within days of that dinner, I decided to drop that scene. And I'm very, very glad that I did because I don't think tonally it would have matched. It would have wound up on the cutting room floor anyway. It would have been a very expensive deleted scene. A very expensive three days of shooting that the movie just didn't need. And how wonderful of Andre to have had the insight and to have brought it up. And I really think he did the movie a favor because, as I said, the movie really didn't need it. I think it brought us back to the idea that Steve King had, really, which was that it just comes out of nowhere and we're all guessing what it is. It leaves a little bit of vagueness. Later on, when Jessup is confronted by the mob, he offers us a possible explanation, but it's never made absolutely clear that that's the case. In the meantime, Mrs. Carmody has been offering us another possible explanation, which is that it's biblical, revelations, end of the world. And I thought it would be really lovely that that argument is never entirely settled. It just made the movie a little more sophisticated by not providing that answer really at the head of the movie. It somewhat leaves us wondering, maybe Mrs. Carmody's right. Maybe she actually does have the answer. Again, kind of following that idea that maybe she is the hero of the movie, in a way, depending on your perspective. And in a way, I think it helps the movie explain why people start to believe her and people start to follow her and listen to her. Beg Mother Carmody to show you the way. That's fine. But until then, if you don't shut up... Now here, I'll get back into the camera work. As I was saying, you need fantastic camera operators for this roving style of camera work where it seems to be finding moments rather than predetermining them, where things are happening and you feel like the lens is just kind of staying with it barely, maybe even one step behind. It's that documentary thing. Billy Gearhart, Richie Cantu are brilliant. It's all improvised camera work. Unlike my previous films, where I would plan very carefully in advance, block actors and camera very carefully in rehearsals, and we would make those camera moves and shoot that coverage specifically as I had pre-planned. This was a completely different technique, a completely different approach, all improvised camera work. I would go in there, I'd block the actors, we'd start rehearsing. In fact, we'd start rehearsing with cameras rolling just to see what kind of ragged magic we could maybe grab. And within a few takes, the scene would start to dial in, the actors would start to dial in, and the cameras would start to figure out what they were doing. And it was all improvised. And I would watch what Richie and Billy were doing on my monitors. 
they each had a monitor. So I was watching both cameras at the same time, what they were doing, and seeing how they were finding the scene, how they were discovering the scene. And, man, I love that approach. It hung my sort of directorial visual style more on an in-the-moment, rather brilliantly executed set of cameramen who were very versed in this style rather than any amount of pre-planning that I had done. And it was really liberating and really fun to work this way for a change. I think it requires a certain amount of confidence to give yourself over to it as a director, especially if you're a bit of a control freak. You, you know, come on now. I, I am a little bit. And to say goodbye to control freak and say hello to, okay, in the moment, let's go, let the cameraman find it, improvise this stuff. And in between takes, I would go in and I would suggest something to Billy or Richie. Just as I would adjust, make adjustments or suggestions to actors, I would go in and do the same thing with the camera. I'd say, okay, that was good, but you missed this little moment over here, and have you considered maybe just dropping here, you know, a little more emphasis on this, a little less on that, and boom, we'd be rolling again immediately. And watching these takes happening almost in real time, I did a little bit of playback, but not that much, and not nearly as much as I normally do. I'm not examining every shot in playback. We didn't have time. We had a six-week shoot. We had to get through it. So mostly in real time, I'm judging what these guys are doing and collaborating with them and seeing the marvelous stuff that they're coming up with. And I dug that. I really did. I think the actors did, too, because they had to embrace it. I think they were a little thrown at first, but once they got used to it, the fact that a camera could bump into them at any moment or suddenly it was their closest and they didn't know. <laughs> yes. You know, I, I heard a few of them say it was the closest thing to theater that they had ever done on film. Yeah, well, you cannot, as an actor, phone it in on any given take. You can't just say, okay, well, it's a big wide shot, they're on my back, and, you know, I don't have to be on completely. They had to be on every single take because they never knew where that camera was going to be. That camera could suddenly come into a massive close-up and they didn't see it coming from behind their shoulder, or the lens would zoom in from across the room. They don't know they're being featured in the shot, but the camera's across the room. So they never knew where that camera was going to be or what it was going to be getting. And yes, it threw some of them at first. Andre was very used to it because he'd been doing Homicide, Life on the Streets, the TV show, for a long time. And Tom really got into it right off the bat. Some of the other actors were a little thrown at first, but everybody wound up embracing it because it was just as liberating for them, too. And there was none of this holding back stuff. And I think actors want to be challenged, and they really want to be on. So we all got into the style of it. In a moment, I'll tell you about how I met Richie and Billy and Ron Schmidt, our great DP. But first, I just want to take a moment, since he's about to die here. <laughs> I want to mention Brian Libby who plays the biker in this sequence. Brian's a really old pal of mine. My very first Stephen King short when I was 20 years old, he was in. He's an actor I've always loved. I think they should be making more westerns so that this guy could be in them. He played Floyd, one of Morgan Freeman's gang, in Shawshank Redemption. He was the sheriff who arrested John Coffey in Green Mile. And I try to find something for Brian and everything because I just love him. He's got a great face, a great voice, a great Neville Brand kind of thing. I love his moment here where he just steps forward and suddenly is the tough guy like out of a John Carpenter movie. 
he's got this wonderful, dry, laconic, yeah, I'll do it. I'm the tough guy. And then he walks out and gets whacked. What I love about this character is you think he's going to enter into this movie in a much bigger way than he does. It's just the setup as it is. <laughs> you think, of course, he'll be coming back. And then, well, he does come back, part of him, anyway, briefly. And Brian just did it just marvelously, and I just wanted to acknowledge him. And here are my shots of these people vanishing into the mist, which are right out of Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories episode. <laughs> you can't help but be derivative when you have people walking off into a mist. It reminds me of half the movies Steven Spielberg ever directed. This scene was so much fun to do. This was, would you say, Denise, the most fun I had on the set? Oh, no question, the most fun you had on set. This day was wonderful because to shoot this, it's not something you can really direct from the monitors. Uh, I couldn't be directing everybody in the rope and what was going on. So I got out there myself. I'm actually, the creature in the mist is me and some grips and some effects guys. And I had the microphone on, and I was shouting directions, and we were basically playing tug-of-war with Tom and the other actors here. And we had a gizmo to make it move really fast, and I would be shouting out, and they wouldn't be hearing me half the time because <laughs> there was so much going on. We had Daryl out there with a pole to raise it into the air. So all these cues I was shouting out as we were playing tug-of-war, and it was one of those moments where filmmaking becomes fun and childlike and I loved it and I would yell okay everybody fall down and they would all fall down and and what delighted me I mean we shot this so quickly but the sequence winds up being a pretty intense scary sequence you know once you add certain sound effects our sound folks did wonderful job with the rope whizzing and everything like that and you let people use their imaginations, and you see these wonderful actors doing their jobs, and it winds up being a very intense, scary, old-school kind of scene. It's very mysterious. And what you don't see is us outside, and Greg Nicotero smearing the blood on the rope as it's coming back in <laughs> with his rubber gloves. <laughs> and here's Brian's last little moment, or at least part of Brian's last little moment in the movie. That's actually a construct, again, from Greg and K&B with the guts hanging out. Anyway, this was really, I think, about the most fun I had. Really my most fun day of shooting. You can see all that silliness on the documentary that we have on the DVD supplements. Constantine Nasser, who was our documentary filmmaker, captured it brilliantly, so check it out. Do you see? Now do you believe? Now, there's a little scene coming up here right after this that I added to the movie on the fly. It's this scene where Tom is asking about the work lights. And we see that Jim and Myron have actually been rigging them up to some batteries that we figure were back on the loading dock somewhere. I realized as we were shooting, as we were getting into some of this night stuff, we have a supermarket without any power in it. And we had a big extended action scene coming up here all at night where creatures get into the store. And I thought, we really are asking for trouble if we don't have some kind of light source. And I thought it might be very cool also to have work lights on so that some of that light could be very glary and a little harsh, and it'll kind of reinforce that documentary feel. So I came up with the idea one night to add these work lights, just to justify using light wherever we wanted to, just to give Ron the additional tools 
so that we weren't having to do super careful lighting in the scene that's coming up. This young lady here is just a doll, and I love her. Her name is Alexa Davalos. She's going to be a very important actress and have a major career. I am predicting that now. You heard it here first. I directed her in a pilot for NBC about two years ago called Reigns with Jeff Goldblum in it. I asked her to come do this role as well, even though it's a smaller role than she deserves. She came and did it for me beautifully. I've known Alexa since she was 18 months old. I'm so proud of her. I went to high school with her mom, Alyssa, who was one of the best actresses at Hollywood High School there in the theater department. We hung out for three years putting on shows at Hollywood High School. And so I've known Alexa for a long, long time, and she is developing into one wonderful actress. I mean, she's already there. She has become an amazing actress, and I'm so proud of her, and you feel like a proud uncle watching her career develop. I'm very happy that she came and did this. This year she also did Feast of Love, the great Robert Benton directed. It's a wonderful movie with Morgan Freeman. She's in that, and her next thing is Ed Zwick's upcoming movie, which the title of which I forget. I'm sorry, but she's got a major role in that, so keep your eye on this young lady. The parking lot lamps. We had a scene here that we were going to start off at the barricades, and then we cut away, and there was this whole big conversation between Tom and Hattie, and then Toby Jones joins them, Ollie joins them, and and it was just this big sort of scene. And instead, I just cut straight to this guy. I pulled that scene out. You'll see that on the deleted scenes. I just cut to Andy Stahl here, one of our fine local actors, playing Mike Hatlin with his chicken wing, and the bug hitting the window. And you'll see why I pulled it out. It wasn't at all bad stuff. It was just a big, long pause. And the truth is, I wanted that bug to hit the window. So once I pulled that out and just cut to that guy with the chicken and saw that bug hit the window, the momentum of the whole film really kicked into another gear. It was a very satisfying thing to do. And I love this bug. It is just beautifully conceived and gorgeously executed. Again, cafe effects. Those fine folks are the ones who did the CGI work in my dear friend Guillermo del Toro's movie, Masterpiece, Pan's Labyrinth. And when I saw that movie, I knew he had not had a big budget on that film. And I said, Guillermo, you got to introduce me to these people. And so he made the introductory call and hooked me up with Cafe Effects, Jeff Barnes, Everett Burrell, all those fine folks over there who just turned themselves inside out to give us an amazing array of special effects, an amazing number of special effects in this movie on a budget I'd be embarrassed to quote. I mean, it was like way, way... It was about $100 million less in special effects money than, say, Pirates of the Caribbean 3. <laughs> Probably more than that. <laughs> Actually, more than $100 million less. Anyway, they did a fantastic job. That's where this work comes from. The bug itself, some great creature design there, supervised by Greg Nicotero and me. And some great work done there by Bernie Wrightson, our dear artist friend. And we must acknowledge the other creature design artists for KNB. Mike Broom, Aaron Sims, Tristan Shane did some amazing work. But I do believe these bugs were most influenced by Bernie Wrightson. And I just love the way they come to life here. I love the way it's a total magic trick to me. I don't know how these marvelous artists do this at their computer. But it blows my mind. And it's such a pleasure to see these shots come along when you're editing the movie. Because it starts off with blank shots and then it takes on this life of its own. 
Here we have a little trick. Daryl Pritchett hurling baseballs at the window <laughs> to get him to crack. And then that goes through a huge process, winding up in a computer where these guys add the interactive element. It's just wonderful to see. Look out, look out, look out! The light, that's the light! This scene was an absolutely crazy and intense and exhilarating scene to direct. It's a huge sequence. It's almost 10 minutes long. We shot it in six days. I've never moved so fast in my life. What made it particularly weird and challenging is, you know, when you approach a scene like this, uh, you know, all that talk about improvised camera work aside, you really do have to plan the shots out for a big action scene like this. There's a lot of physical stuff going on. There's a lot of effects that need to happen. So you do storyboard, and when you're there on the set and you're actually starting to engineer how you're going to shoot it and engineer the blocking and the timing of things, you sometimes realize that your imagination when doing the storyboards doesn't really apply to the reality of the set and the reality of what's going to happen. You've got pockets of people here and there. You've got to keep their stories going while cutting back and forth from the other people and their stories are going. And I realized that what I had storyboarded was at least, what, 50% Obsolete. Yeah, it was about the whole second half of the sequence you changed as we were going. Yeah, it was really scary. There was this one, there was like a huge centipede at one point that crawls through the break in the glass and threatens Billy, and Irene kind of saves him. And I knew I needed the idea of Billy being threatened by a monster. It was really critical for the end. It was really critical, but I also knew that if I had this big chunk with a centipede in the center of this thing, it would throw the timing off completely. I couldn't just take a one-minute detour while all this stuff was going on, and you had to keep this momentum going. There's only so many times you can cut back to them trying to light the mop before they better damn light the mop, or it's going to start being funny to the audience. It'll be like the Monty Python thing of seeing the knight riding over the the hill and every time you cut back to him it's the same shot and he hasn't gotten any closer and I knew that this sequence was going to be riddled with those kinds of problems months later in the editing room as I started to block it because the little pictures you draw when you're planning is really quite different than standing on the set and starting to block the actors and get a sense of the rhythm so I knew that I was going to have to reinvent this sequence substantially as we were shooting it But yeah, so what scene 35 really wound up being was me taking all the storyboards off the big foam core board and throwing them in the air and saying, okay, let's do this, and really making the scene up as I went along, which was really scary because there was so much to keep track of and so much to try and sew together and so much to anticipate how it would cut together in the editing room months down the road. And it was just kind of making it up as we went along. And everybody, God bless them, just pitched in and trusted me. But once we got into the editing room and started cutting it together, wow, I was shocked at how well it all went together. Pleasantly shocked, of course, because it was a nice thing to learn that when the chips are down and all your plans have fallen apart, you can rely on your instincts and that your instincts will see you through and not leave the sequence unfilmed or unrealized, especially when you know you have such a tight schedule and you're not going to have the luxury of reshooting anything if you screw it up. Here's Tom Jane chasing a flaming ball on a mechanical arm down the aisle and beating on it. And by the time our brilliant visual effects people finish erasing the rig that's on the ceiling that has the arm and adding in the CGI bird, 
and using most of the real fire that was in the shot, augmenting that just a little bit with some CGI flame, you wind up with a very convincing effect. I think that was an incredibly difficult shot to do. I thought they pulled it off so beautifully. And one thing I thought would be really fun, we're going to do this in the VFX, the visual effects documentary that's on the DVD supplement. I want to show you the before and after version of those shots of him chasing the flaming ball, which magically transforms then into a flaming bird. I'll do a a back-to-back, so check that out in the visual effects section. I learned a lot about shooting visual effects, shooting this movie. Like this shot, for example, the bird lands on the table. That was basically a lot of people screaming and a table being jerked around with strings. Everything else was, of course, brought to it by the special effects folk. And I really do admire what they do. And they can really save your ass, especially when you're shooting this fast. There's a lot of stuff that winds up on screen that maybe shouldn't be there. Especially with that fluid camera thing I was talking about. Two cameras at all times. Sometimes a guy would make a camera move to come around and suddenly realize he's pointing the camera at the other camera crew. And sometimes you have to erase that stuff. And then comes the entire layer of things you do have to add, not just the creatures, but other elements sometimes. There's a shot coming up. This shot here, Ollie wasn't even in the shot here with this plate. So not only did they have to add the creature, they also had to add Ollie in the background. And when he shoots it and its head explodes here, Ollie's in that shot, but the bird isn't. And they added blood spatters and all other elements. It was a frenetic week, and I just couldn't believe that we got through everything that we had to shoot and I really couldn't believe that everything turned out as well as it did considering I was cruising totally on instinct at a certain point the storyboards went off the board and I was just making it up and I was really really gratified this shot here where Tom comes out was also reinventing oh probably a day's worth of shooting there was at least a page of additional stuff here and I said, okay, we're at the end of our sixth day. We're completing the scene tonight. I'm boiling everything down into this one elegant shot that just keeps pulling back, and it reveals Sally on the floor. And we're going to make the point that the story is making and not add more action as per the script. So I tossed out the rest of the sequence and just let the scene end right here. And I'm really satisfied. Sometimes you make those compromises and you wind up with something better than what you had intended to shoot. Now this little transitional scene here with the legs where some unseen creature finds them and drags them off. This is another scene I added to the film. It wasn't for any conceptual reason in terms of Stephen King's story. It was simply because I realized that those legs were going to be sitting out there the rest of the movie and would be getting in the way. So I added that little scene, and we just grabbed it really quick one night. And the unseen creature in the mist was me and Greg Nicotero dragging those legs off. I know, of course you do. Here is Lori Holden doing absolutely gorgeous work. I love seeing actors of great quality and caliber doing beautiful work like this. This scene here is probably one of the few scenes in the entire movie that isn't part of that improvised camera work thing. We had a couple of moments kind of earlier in the movie before we get to the supermarket that were more traditionally shot movie scenes. 
And part of the visual language of the movie wanted to be the thing, as things get more frenetic, as things get more ragged, so does the camera work, and more improvised it becomes. But there was a little quiet moment here that I perceived needed an oasis in the movie, this moment between David and Amanda. And I really wanted to do something that was very calm because they're getting comfort from each other. It's really sort of a breath that the movie takes, the characters take, and I wanted the camera work to reflect that. And then suddenly we're kind of back into that ragged style here where the material suddenly isn't so comforting, where we're thrown back into the discomfort of the situation. We're off that little oasis of storytelling. And I love the instincts on display here. I love how I think this might have been Richie, this particular shot, how he just picks the moment to reveal. Jack Hurst, another wonderful local actor that we hired to play Joe Eagleton, the burned guy here, who does a magnificent job. And Brandon O'Dell plays his brother, Bobby, the other fellow in the scene here. And I'm glad we found a really good part for Brandon because we had him read for almost everything in the movie. And we kept thinking, wow, he's really good, but not quite right for that, not quite right for that. Finally, Bobby became the thing. And so we got two really terrific actors to play these brothers, and they were both local hires. And the makeup here, of course, is KNB, my buddy Greg Nicotero, though I suspect that it was... Jake Garber, who did the application on it. Good old Jake. We love Jake. Yeah, he's the tallest man that ever walked. Jake actually played the thing from the old movie at one of Bob Burns' Halloween parties, and he was very good. This shot here is kind of backed momentarily back to that very traditional thing. It reminds me actually of a shot from Shawshank and the way it's very still and continues to reveal, continues to reveal and develops and then gives you the final bit of information at the tail. It's a very simple but definitely thought out shot. Now the woman who's lying there in that last shot who's just committed suicide, the character's name is Hattie. I want to tell you about the actress. We got to give some props to her. She's a dear friend of all of ours and a wonderful colleague that I have known for years and years. Her name is Susie Watkins, and this was her first role in a movie, professionally speaking. She's been my script supervisor for years, and she's one of the top script supervisors in the business. She was script on Green Mile. She was script on Majestic, for the most part. And I saw her do a little part in a little short film. Actually, my friend Michael Sloan, who wrote The Majestic, did. And I thought Susie was absolutely fantastic, so I asked her to come do this movie. I'm sorry I cut her biggest scene, but momentum being what it needed to be, I kind of had to do it. But she's forgiven me, thank goodness. But she was wonderful to work with, and I just adore her. And you can check out her deleted scene, check out her work, and all the other deleted scenes on the DVD supplement, because it's all on there. See what we cut out of the movie, and I'll tell you why. Gently. One, two... This scene here in the loading dock is really one of my favorite kind of scenes as a director. In fact, this whole run of scenes in this section of the movie, of talking to Joe the burn guy, David and Amanda talking, the guys whispering at the barricade here in the loading dock, the scene that follows, okay, we're going to the pharmacy, that kind of intensity, which is all just good, chewy dialogue and letting the actors do what they do, actually is the most satisfying kind of scene for me to direct. It's kind of exhilarating to do more action-y stuff, but 
ultimately, these are the scenes where the movie really lives or dies, I think. And you see what these actors are doing and how damn good they are. Now, this we shot also very quickly. This was the first week of production. Earlier, I think, when we were talking about Norman the Tentacles in the loading dock, we said, okay, we shot this for six days. That was maybe a bit misleading. We shot everything in the loading dock in six days, not just the tentacle stuff, but everything that occurs there in six days. That was our first week of filming. Was it six or was it five? Um, I think it actually was five. It was six. Was it six? Okay, thank God. Thank God you're here. (laughs) But that was a lot of stuff to get going. And this being one of our earlier scenes... There was, gosh, I was just so excited when we started grinding film on this because you see that the character of Amanda is really the cornerstone of this. She's the fulcrum point of this whole debate. And the, everybody's doing such a good job in here. And she was so raw when she walked into that room because it was the first scene she was playing in the movie. And she was so primed to go. I mean, I love that there are tears spilling out of her eyes, but none of that is acting. That was just her. She was so in the moment. And that just so, I think surprised and inspired the guys around her. Again, everybody's on their A-game here, and I find that absolutely thrilling. She wasn't even aware that those tears were coming out of her eyes. I went up to her after the take and said, wow, that was cool. She said, what? (laughs) She had no idea. People are basically good, decent. My God, David, we're a civilized society. Sure, as long as the machines are working and you can dial 911, but you take those things away. This is also a very good moment just from a standpoint of camera technique, the way that the camera is peeking through characters and finding those moments, again, that improvised thing, kind of a good moment to get back to Ron, our DP, Billy and Richie, the camera operators. I met them on The Shield, directing an episode of The Shield. I always knew I wanted to shoot this movie in a much more improvised and ragged style. I was a huge fan of The Shield, still am. In fact, Laurie is doing the final season right now that you'll be seeing next year in a major role. I think I mentioned that. Anyway, I was a big fan of The Shield. Sean Ryan, who created The Shield, found out I was a big fan and invited me to come direct an episode. I was excited to do it just for its own sake, but also I thought maybe this is good training for me for what I want to do with The Mist. And it wound up to be such an exciting experience that I said to Ron and to the boys, the camera boys, come do this movie with me. And that's where I think you can see the influence of that style and that shield experience in some of the work that we're doing here they have an amazing intuition it's just next door you'll be safe daddy here's nathan gamble kicking ass everybody was crowded around the monitors watching this and people had tears in their eyes you had tears in your eyes oh my god i never cry on set (laughs) ever and i was just a mess this was maybe take six, like our sixth and final take, and I love this little boy. Look how goddamned good he and Tom are here. Look how connected they are. These are two actors doing world-class work, in my opinion. It was really electrifying to see this happen. And we started off, you know, take one, and I love that Nathan's a little mature guy you can talk to. You don't talk to him like a kid. You talk to him like an adult. And I was able to talk to him as a director, talking to an actor, and tell him what this scene meant and what it needed, same way I would do with Tom or Lori Holden, who's also doing an amazing, great, raw job here, right? And he got it, and he would get into, you know, the first take was good and the second take was better, and he would work him, each subsequent take was working up another notch of emotion until he finally hit this take. 
and I just flabbergasted everybody. And no, there's no makeup. There's no fake tears, none of that. There's all the f- tears and snot and raw emotion is all Nathan Gamble, and he's nine years old, folks. you got to hand it to him. And in this scene here, you can really see that sort of shield style of camera work at play. It was just really thrilling to put it on the big screen. And again, to work in that manner where it's not thought out in advance by me. Why can't you just leave well enough alone? This gentleman here sharpening the spear. I promised to get back to him, Jeff DeMunn, who plays Dan Miller, who ran in with the bloody nose at the beginning of the movie. I love him, one of the dearest men I've ever known. He's been in every movie I've ever directed, and I hope to have him in everything I ever do. He was in Shawshank and Green Mile and Majestic. He's in this. He's also been in a few things that I had a hand in writing, like The Blob remake in 1988 that Chuck Russell directed. He is another one of those gold standard, fantastic character actors who will do whatever the script requires, but he will transcend the words on the page and bring something special to the movie, and I love him for that. Stoning people who piss you off. For Annie Sternhagen here, who just beamed Marsha Gay Harden with a can of peas. <laughs> this got the biggest laugh in the movie right here with the peas. Frances Sternhagen, another legend, a legendary actress. I've been a fan of her since starting over, which I think was in the late 70s, which is a terrific movie. Alan J. Pakula. Anyway, I've loved her forever, and I just was so thrilled when she said she'd come do this movie, and I didn't realize that the experience of working with her would be as great a pleasure as it was. There's not an ounce of diva in this lady. She is just one of those great ballsy actors who shows up and does what's necessary and, again, improves what's there on the page, and I just love her. Our favorite moment with her is coming up with a can of bug spray and a lighter. (laughs) And she practiced that for... Weeks. Several days, at least. Several days. She was a little nervous about maybe doing that. But on the other hand, she was also really excited to do it. And then, of course, little Nathan. Tell him about Nathan. (laughs) Yeah, Nathan had told her that she played his favorite character in the movie because she gets to kill a creature with her big fireball of flame. And she told me, well, I have to do it now. She (laughs) didn't want to disappoint Nathan. (laughs) That's right. That's exactly right. She really embraced it. She was a little afraid of it. But when she finally did it, she She, was badass. She was Rambo. (laughs) Yeah. She she kicked ass. And that was the one of the biggest cheers in the entire movie in the audience when she did that. It was the second biggest cheer after Mrs. Carmody getting killed. Here we are out in our mist tank, the part of the soundstage that we would fill up with mist, shoot our exterior stuff. Here's a marvelous set. Uh, Let's get back to Greg Melton, my production designer. This was the set that was the most mysterious to us because Greg kept trying to put dimensions on this thing, and we kept looking at the blueprints, and I finally said to Greg, you know what's wrong with how we're approaching this? It's not an environment that's going to have dimensions. It's just going to be weird and dark and misty and abstract in there. And so I said, here, here's a way to save some money and actually make the set work. Build a two-wall set again. Build the front of the store and build the side of the store. Everything else is going to be freestanding. If we were to turn on all the stage lights there and clear the mist out, you'd see off the set right to the stage walls. It was all about light and shadow and dark and Ron's fantastic lighting and people with flashlights and grabbing those moments. So there was, uh, basically you're looking at a two-wall set here, plus with the pharmacist's cubicle added, which was 
its own thing on wheels. That pharmacist cubicle, if we needed to move it anywhere, we could just move it aside or reposition it. So it was almost like its own little set that we wheeled onto the bigger set. But aside from that, if you walk past that cubicle, you would be walking right onto the soundstage. So we kept the whole abstract intention here, and it gave us complete freedom on how to shoot it because we were just dealing with light and shadows and we weren't running into any walls that didn't need to be there. It was a great way to free up our thinking and let the scene, as Greg and I had discussed, Greg Melton and I had discussed, let the environment just get weirder the further in we go. Let it become more abstract, more of a sort of twilight zone space. This was a tremendously fun thing to shoot because I'd gotten through that huge scene 35 with the birds get into the market and nothing scared me now. I figured if I can get through that, nothing's going to terrify me. So we just got in here. We had three days on the schedule to shoot this scene and we got it done in three days. This whole thing in the pharmacy was done in three days in a headlong rush. Hurry it up. I hear something. Something fucking weird. And I have to say, it really is satisfying when you've set a challenge like that for yourself and for your crew and everybody rises up to meet that challenge. That's part of the fun of being under that kind of stress and pressure is that when you accomplish it, you feel great. Interesting thing about working in this particular environment on this set is the camera's seeing a lot more here than the naked eye did. When you were standing on that set, we really had that misted up quite a bit in there. And it was a little nerve-wracking shooting this stuff because sometimes I was wondering if the camera would see anything. But thankfully, of course, Ron Schmidt, our DP, our cinematographer, had done camera tests in prior weeks and really scoped it out, really figured out what the density of the mist needed to be in there in order to show up. I just found it very interesting that as sort of a technical bit of insight that the camera lens and the negative actually saw more than I was seeing when I was standing there. Another scene lit very much with flashlights. Pretty much the most of it is lit with flashlights, so there's a lot of dancing shadows, etc. There's a young actor, Eamon Joseph, as the MP, who's really selling the hell out of this. Jeez. My favorite gross moment in the movie, the spiders coming out of his face. And that got a huge response out of the audience, as did these spiders. And I love these spiders. They're my favorite creature in the movie. Incredibly creepy design. Greg Nicotero and I were supervising the creature design early on. I won't get too far into that because there's a documentary that gets into that. But Mike Broom was one of our young design artists. And the spider design was very heavily influenced mostly by Mike, and he did a fantastic job, and Cafe did an amazing job, I feel, in this sequence, bringing these things to life, giving them character and life, and all the other visual effects requirements as well. I think this scene is really a showcase for how good Cafe is. They had to really discover a lot of textures and the floating webs, etc., etc. It's also a wonderful showcase for the editor, Hunter Vi. And Hunter, I should mention, was also from The Shield. I mentioned that my cinematographer and my camera operators, I took them from The Shield. I also brought their editor, who had done my episode, and the script supervisor, because I figured they would be very used to this kind of free-floating style. Hold on! Hold on! 
Here's a great effect with the MP hitting the floor. It's a combination of the real actor composited with a dummy where the back springs open, enhanced by little CGI spiders. It's a combination of techniques that were beautifully composited together. That was really an effort between Greg Nicotero and Everett Burrell. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go! Here's one of the biggest cheers in the movie coming up. Francis Sternhagen being a badass, frying this spider. Actually, what she was frying was a mop head being held out there by Corey Pritchett, who then dropped the mop head and took it out of the shot, as you saw. And then the Cafe FX geniuses added the animation of the spider within the existing flames, erased Corey and the mop, and there you have a wonderful visual sort of tip of the hat to John Carpenter's The Thing as the spider goes running off in flames. The spiders are also a tip of the hat to the old Outer Limits series. There was an episode called The Xanti Misfits. Apparently my childhood influences are showing today. I saw it when I was five years old. It freaked me out. It had weird bugs with human faces in it. And it was starring Bruce Dern in an early role, by the way. But I always had in mind to take a little bit of that flavor, that Xanthi Misfits, that freaky, weird, they're kind of human-like faces idea for this. So that was one of my very early directives, is I wanted the spiders to have that feel. And coming up here is one of my favorite pop scares in the entire movie. It's the oldest trick in the book. Something jumps into the shot, makes a loud noise, and everybody jumps. I figured it would work. I had no idea how well it would work. The very first time I saw this, I was watching it at a test screening with Stephen King right next to me. And right at that moment when Bill Sadler pops into the shot, Stephen King went about three feet off of his chair like a cat, came back down, scrunched way down with his fists over his face. It was really one of the most gratifying moments because I scared the crap out of Stephen King with the oldest trick in the book. Speaking of old tricks, there was another earlier, there was a wonderful jump in the audience in the earlier scene when they're first walking into the pharmacy and they're moving very silently and carefully across the room and Bill Sadler kicks something really loudly. That was an improv that Bill did there when we were shooting it and I loved it and decided to use it. And I knew it would get the audience and indeed it did. Obscenities and profanities of such nightmare proportions and haunting evil lurking. Now, there's a scene here that you're not seeing because it was not deleted, but moved. Right before Tom wakes up here and starts talking to Lori, there was that little scene you'll see later. It's a very intimate little scene between Tom and Nathan Gamble, David and his son. It is the quiet little scene where Billy is saying, please don't let the monsters get me. And... I remember after the first test screening, this is why it's wonderful to have test screenings, because they're miserable experiences, but they always teach you something about the movie. I walked out of that feeling like that scene was coming too early in the film. I wanted to move that later in the film, as late in the film as I could, so that it was fresher in the audience's mind when the end of the movie happened. Also, it felt like there was a lot less emphasis and weight to that scene here, because it just really played as a lead-in to all of this stuff that's going on with Mrs. Carmody preaching. Indeed, you could hear Mrs. Carmody in the background as Billy and David were whispering in this very intimate thing. Felt like it just didn't quite have the weight that it needed. So I moved it about 12 minutes later into the movie. You'll see where it is later. 
it went from being a daytime scene to a nighttime scene. So there was a little bit of tricky retiming of the negative that Keith Shaw, who's our negative timer, brilliant guy, did to try and make it look candlelit. So it's just its own little scene at night, very intimate, and I think it really accomplished what I was setting out to do, which is to really give that scene greater weight, help set up the ending of the movie, and give it more depth for the audience. Bags of groceries and, and hide them up at the, one of the check stands by the door. It was your idea. It's your vehicle. It'll be your call. I'd rather die out there trying than in here waiting. Here's a shot I really love. This is a great example of the kind of beautiful improvised camera work that my guys were doing. This is Billy Gearhart on his Steadicam. I love the way this shot just keeps flowing and finding the faces as the dialogue proceeds. It's just one of those things, maybe the audience doesn't even notice it, maybe you listening don't even care. But it's one of those things that as a filmmaker, you're always looking for the exciting visual thing. It's not always the flashy thing that gets you excited. A shot like this just delights me because I love the way it plays out, how the faces come in, what the actors are doing, and just how the lens is capturing what's going on. Stuff like that really is a thrill for me. Also, I really do like airing out a cut with a shot. If you can hold the shot, if you can sustain the shot, I've always liked doing that very much. Let the story happen without the cutting, if you can. And every once in a while you'll find a shot like that. That is just perfect for that purpose. And you can hold that shot and none of the other coverage will improve it. And so that's really fun. Especially in a movie like this where you do wind up with a lot of fast cutting because of the speed and the pace of the film and the intensity of some of the scenes. They're not in the store. The only place we haven't looked is the loading dock. Because you know, you saw the good face of God. Marsha doing an amazing job. She was absolutely tireless that day, just going on and on like the Energizer Bunny with this fantastic group of extras all reacting and being whipped into the frenzy. And they were really, really, really in the mindset of it. And she was just fearless, just fearless in front of the camera <laughs> and just went again and again. And, of course, our extras applauded her quite a few times. I told you, okay, I don't know where they are and I don't <gasps> And here are Walter Fauntleroy and Juan Perejas, who play Donaldson and Morales, two young local actors, wonderful fellas. This is called Hanging Around on the Set. I know, bad pun, but they really did have to hang around on the set on those harnesses for a while, and it was very uncomfortable, but they did it like champs and not a word of complaint, so grateful to them. This is a great time to start talking about Sam Witwer, which I've been meaning to do. Here's Sam getting run through the doors by Bill Sadler. Sam is playing the character of Jessup, Wayne Jessup, who's a young army private. Now, the Wayne Jessup character is actually a character I added to the movie, and this whole scene here is something that I added to the movie. I felt that in the story that Stephen King wrote, you never actually see the threat of Mrs. Carmody's unhinged power come to fruition. And I felt that we needed to follow through. We needed to follow through on that threat and show what this mob mentality does and fervor does lead to. And so I added Jessup and I added the human sacrifice scene of the movie. For me, the theme of the film that developed as I was adapting 
the story really want it to be that the monsters you're stuck inside the market with are worse than the monsters that are outside the market. Your friends and neighbors, the people you thought you could trust, who are going batshit crazy because they're being driven by fear and turning into a mindless mob. I thought that was a pretty provocative thing to work into a, a film that could otherwise have been just kind of a monster movie. Gives the film some validity and some reason for me to want to make it. And I think that's why Stephen King wrote it. When I first read The Mist quite a long time ago, back in 1980, I got that feeling that that was what Steve was angling for, too. And there were some literary ancestors to this that I felt he might have been inspired by, like Lord of the Flies, the great William Golding novel, or Shirley Jackson's great short story, The Lottery. I want to get that feel into this movie. And that's why I invented the character of Jessup. And Sam was maybe the second guy who read for this part on the tape that I saw that Deb Aquila, my casting director, had sent me. And I called her immediately. I got off the treadmill, picked up the phone, and I said, hire that guy. He's perfect. Don't you know by now, don't you know the truth? We are being punished for what? For going... And you can see the amazing work that Sam is doing here. He's a wonderful, wonderful, talented young actor. It was a thrill to work with him and see him do this kind of work and hold his own with actors like Bill Sadler and Marsha Gay Harden. This was a very intense scene to shoot. It was really a challenge. This was the one day I had to shoot eight pages. Let's start there. Casey Colwell, my brilliant AD, said, we can't shoot eight pages in one. We'll never get this. I said, yes, we will. And we, we got in there with 100 extras who are doing a brilliant job because they really had to be uh, potent part of this, as you can see. You can't be whipping up a mob into a mindless frenzy without the mob laying it down, too. And I have my principal cast, most of my principal cast, acting their asses off here. And in fact, I'd have to say that this is my favorite scene of Marsha Gay Harden's in the movie, because you really get that sense of how unhinged she is in little things that she does, not just the shouting, but the in-between moments. And we did. We shot eight pages this day. Also, you can see just the intensity, the rawness of what's going on here. It was exhausting, emotionally exhausting. The cameramen would walk out between takes, and you could see them shaking a little bit because it got very, very real in there and very, very scary. It was easily the scariest day on set. It was just very uncomfortable even sitting at the monitors watching it because the creatures, you know, all well and good, no matter how great they look on film, they're still giant bugs. And this was very, very real. This was raw human crazy yeah, that's insane, what made insanity. it so disturbing. Yeah. yeah, and I've never directed something that hit this kind of a fever pitch, especially with a hundred, over a hundred people in the scene. Yeah, just the noise of it was yeah. just frightening. It hit an amazing sort of fever pitch on the set that I had hoped would come across on screen, and I think indeed it has. And to acknowledge an important component, again, I know I mentioned the extras, but they were very significant to that scene. They were a wonderful group of extras, just amazing. And back to Sam Witwer, here he is just really acting this to perfection, I think. Fans will know him from Battlestar Galactica. He played Crashdown in the first season. A very talented young actor, big future, I think. And I love him because he's a total sci-fi horror geek, just like I am. And to prove I'm a geek, this monster coming out of the mist here to get him was designed in-house at Cafe. Look, it's the boss from Monsters, Inc., it's the same kind of design. <laughs> when I saw it, I said, this will be our little tip of the hat to Pixar, who make some of my favorite movies. 
Now, coming up here is a stunt that he gets yanked off into the mist. Sam had been practicing for days with this thing, and he was very excited to do it. But I decided to do it with a stuntman first, just right off the bat, and the stunt worked so well. When Sam showed up on the set with his rig on, I said, Sam, I got it. I'm sorry. I'm a wiener. <laughs> but we got it, and the philosophy of the movie on this schedule is, if you got it, you move on. But he was very understanding about that. Now, here's the scene that I was talking about earlier. The promise you won't let the monsters get me scene with Billy and David. Again, this was originally shot lying in the aisle with all those people around them. And Mrs. Carmody preaching. This is before they find Jessup and go into the back room and find the soldiers who've hung themselves. I just felt it was much better placed here. So I just, I had shot it in close-ups. The whole scene plays really nicely in close-up. And it was really just a function of Keith Shaw taking what was really a daylight-looking bit of lighting and really warming it up and really toning it down and really just fooling us into thinking that it was meant to be a candlelit nighttime scene. And I'm really delighted with the placement of it and how it worked out. I particularly think it takes on greater meaning because Billy is saying this to his dad after the mob has killed Jessup as well. I think it just from a structural story standpoint, it winds up being more powerful that the little boy has seen Jessup getting killed by these people. So what's he referring to? The monster's outside, the monster's inside. Again, it kind of brings us back to that theme. It's very pleasing. I want to get back to the editing for a moment. We had a very crunched post-production schedule, about six months from when we stopped shooting to when we handed the movie over for release. That was insane. I told you before, aside from my great camera crew from The Shield, I also took Hunter Vi, my editor, Allison Young, my script supervisor, who were very conversant in this particular style. Being in the editing room with Hunter was a pleasure. He had edited my Shield episode, and since he knows this style so well, he's as well-versed in it as the cameramen are, I thought it would be really handy because editing this kind of material is so different because every single take is different, every single... Setup is improvised by those wonderful lunatic cameramen of mine. So it's not like you have eight choices of the same shot. It's always different. And Hunter proved to be worth his weight in gold. And boy, did we work some long hours during those months editing the film together there in the room. One of the pleasures of this movie is that I got to be really good friends with Tom Jane. And Tom said at one point while we were shooting, he said, you know, I'd really love to come in and observe you editing. And I said, okay, Tom, you know, I've heard this from other actors and they never follow through. Well, Tom showed up. He's no slouch. <laughs> he came in because he's interested in the process. He's interested in directing. In fact, he just finished directing his first movie, some low-budget thing that he wrote with a partner. I'm very excited for him, but he wanted to learn. So the first three months or four months of this editing process, you turned around, there was Tom on the couch in the editing room just hanging out. And I'm talking every day. He did it like a full-time job. And it was a pleasure to have him there because Hunter and I both adored him. And he was very respectful of the process. He would never intrude unless we asked him to. And what a great thing to have a third set of eyes in the room. We could turn around and say, Tom, what do you think? And then he would give us a wonderful reasoned opinion, you know. But it was great to have him around. We called him the editing room mascot. 
And I loved his stick to He was hungry to learn and he took it very, very seriously. They mock our humility and our piousness. They piss on us and laugh. It's from them, the blood of human sacrifice. This is Marsha Gay Harden again rocking the house and all the principals and all the extras doing an amazing, again, a very intense scene. Wasn't quite as intense to shoot as the other one, but it was darn close. And we have some of the wonderful character actors here that rounded out our ensemble. I haven't had a chance to mention Myron, the character of Myron, played by David Jensen. Myron's the other guy who works in the garage or the gas station. He's Jim's pal in this movie and did a marvelous job. Ooh, there it is. Ooh, she gets shot. Fantastic squib work there by Daryl Pritchett. A little milk, a little blood. That Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that is an homage to John Frankenheimer's great film, The Manchurian Candidate. If you haven't seen it, shame on you. I'm a big, big fan. And sometimes you get a little thrill doing a little tip of the hat to the giants whose shoulders you're standing on. That muzzle flash, by the way, that spewed out of Ollie's gun that was digitally added because we were shooting it very close to the lens. So he just mimed it, and we added digitally, you can do that now, and added a big gunshot sound, and it was really pretty convincing. In fact, I was shocked when my friend, my Mexican brother, Guillermo del Toro, told me that in Pan's Labyrinth, which he directed, the entire battle in the forest was done that way with digital muzzle flashes. Okay, okay then. Let's go! Get up! Get up, Get up. Come on! Speaking of digital, the blood in the milk, the blood spreading on the floor behind her head, the bullet hole, all that is digital. The only thing that's not digital is the blood on her dress there on the stomach. You can spend hours on a set pumping blood and trying to get a shot like that. We grabbed that shot in about four minutes off the Steadicam at the end of the day and trusted that the digital people would help us out. Indeed, they did. Some of these digital tools are very powerful and can save you a tremendous amount of time shooting. Oh, Jesus. Everybody's running in this scene, and I always think about Frances Sternhagen, dear Frances, who is not the youngest lady in the world, but tireless, apparently. Not a word of complaint. Oh, here's Myron, David Jensen. We mentioned him before, wrestling with thin air, so we could add the spider later. You're going to see a giant... Digital monster, digital ollie legs, digital gun hitting the windshield and blood, also digital. This is Buck Taylor, by the way. That gentleman who's screaming, Buck Taylor, marvelous actor. The white-haired gentleman. I wanted to mention him. He plays Ambrose in the movie. Another wonderful contribution to our ensemble. And we're about to see him get munched in a sort of awful way by a bunch of spiders. Are they out there? Can they see us? Again, I have to thank my digital guys for the work that they did because our schedule was really tight and I had the time to shoot this one shot of him running away. I had an entire little sequence planned, but this is all I had time to shoot, just that one plate. In fact, it wasn't really even a VFX plate. It was actually the tail end of a take. I just knew I had it and could possibly use it. And so those wonderful folks at Cafe FX concocted this marvelous moment of all the spiders swarming and taking them down. 
if you have talented enough colleagues, they will save your ass. David, no. David, no. David! I did dress all the blood on the windshield, etc., on the hood as well. My old set dressing habits coming back. I did it personally by hand. Wonderful shot of a spider coming up onto this car. I mean, I just love the work that we did here. We have uh, one little practical puppet right there, which then blends seamlessly to the CGI spider that goes up on the roof. And was it Casey or Corey Pritchett who was lying on the roof when that thing first hits the windshield and the windshield shatters, who hits it with a hammer? Uh, it was one of the boys. It, it, was, was, it was one of the Pritchetts. I think it was Casey. I think it was Casey. And we, of course, digitally erased the hand and the hammer that hit the windshield. And then the CGI guys put that wonderful spider skidding out of the hood, hitting the glass, and created that illusion. I know this looks like a white void out in nothingness. It's certainly scripted as an exterior. A lot of these are. We shot them all on the soundstage. In fact, the part of the stage you're looking at right here is the other half of the soundstage that you've been looking at through the windows of the market the entire movie. Here you can see the truck coming up outside the windows. All we did was move our unit outside that market, right out through the door, out into that part of the soundstage, and continued shooting all our mist exteriors, with the exception of one, which I'll point out. But that was our big containment tank for the mist, and it seemed to make all the sense in the world to shoot it there, because you certainly don't want to shoot mist out in the real world where you can't control it, and it blows away. So this made it very controllable, and it was a very intelligent solution. The simplest solution. Sometimes that is the most intelligent solution. And on this dissolve, we come to the one exterior that isn't on that part of the soundstage I just described outside the market. This is actually on the B stage, on the smaller stage, which is where we built all our smaller sets. First, there was the loading dock for the first week of shooting and David's studio. And then we tore those down, and we put up the pharmacy. And then we added this house right here on a corner of the stage. The pharmacy was still standing. We kind of shot this at the same time. And it was just a little corner. No, we, did, we didn't actually tear down David's studio because no. this corner of the house was the outside of that very same little two-wall set. So that had been standing the entire time. And we came in, we drove the truck in onto the soundstage and just played enough of that corner, making the most out of the least, <laughs> making the most out of the set that we had, just picking our angles carefully and creating the impression that there's a larger house there. And the body that's hanging there, well, that was a K&B dummy that Greg Nicotero had brought. We hadn't exactly planned to shoot it this way, but practical reality dictated that I shoot it this way. Problem was the dummy face did not look anything like the actress who had played David's wife earlier, so another digital save. They took a frame grab of that actress and superimposed it onto this body, which does bring me to, I've been praising cafe effects, appropriately so, throughout the entire movie, but we also have to acknowledge Digital Dream and IO Film, because they did an amazing number of little fixes throughout the movie, erasing reflections. When you're shooting this fast, oftentimes the cameras will be dueling. One will get in the way of the other, and suddenly there's crew in the shot. There's camera shadows, equipment that gets in the shot. They erased all that and did a brilliant job.
this shot here traveling down the freeway in the white void. Again, this is right outside the supermarket. We draped the market, which you would see if there was no mist here. We draped it with white plastic. We filled it with mist. My production designer created this freeway and the sign, and we drove it through. Then we broomed out, and this is the same space again with the bus and the huge traffic accident. We just broomed it out, and our wonderful art department dressed all this great stuff in, and then we shot this bit of it. So we kept using that same space. This is right outside the market. The market set is still standing right there in the background. It's just hidden by a lot of mist and big sheets of white plastic from floor to ceiling of the soundstage. This shot that we're dissolving into really represents the most iconic and emblematic moment from Stephen King's novella. It's when the giant creature strides by, and I couldn't leave it out of the movie because it's the one thing people who know and love the novella kept asking for. You're going to have the big monster, aren't you? And in the documentary materials, we go into great detail on how and why this shot was done, but I think it's magnificent. Again, right back to Cafe Effects, creature designed by Bernie Wrightson, a very dear friend and an amazing artist. And these three shots are purely digital shots. They really amaze me. I was rather awestruck. And then, of course, that Dead Can Dance music really heightens the effect of awe and the sense that the world has ended. Now, that Dead Can Dance cue, the music that you are hearing now at this part of the movie, was not written specifically for this film. It was not written by our composer, Mark Isham. This was a piece of existing music that I had known prior to making The Mist. And when I started planning to do this, that theme really stuck in my head, that piece of music specifically. I always thought I might use it as score, and I decided while we were editing that I would use it as score. And Mark Isham, brilliant composer who did The Majestic for me and did the other music in this film, which is very spare. There's not much. What there is, of course, is great. Uh, but Mark was kind enough not to let his ego get in the way of the fact that I wanted to use this Dead Can Dance cue. In fact, he really liked it. Helped enhance it a little bit. There was a bridge there when the monster went by, some strings that he had to add. And I remember anybody who saw this when we were still in the editing room with it, we would show rough cuts to people and we would have the temp music in there. And everybody said, what's that music? Are you going to use that in the movie? Is that just temp or can you really use it? I said, we're really going to use it. Everybody really dug it. Now here we're into the last scene of the movie the most quiet scene of the movie and the most intense scene of the movie. I guess this ending proved somewhat controversial. A little bit. Denise is chuckling. Kind of an understatement. <laughs> I remember after our first test screening, I had two guys come up to me, two grown men come up to me with tears in their eyes, and they came up to me and they said, as they were leaving, Frank, we, we love your movie. We beg you, though, you have to change the ending. It's too much. And then... I thanked them, and they went off, and two other guys came up, and they had tears in their eyes, and they said, Frank, we love your movie. We beg you, don't change the ending. It's perfect. <laughs> I always knew this ending was going to be a bit of a creative risk. It's the one that made the most sense to me. People have assumed that I just came up with it out of the blue and tacked it on to Stephen King's story. Those who know the novella know that the story ends with them kind of driving off into the mist and hoping they get somewhere 
which for purposes of a film always struck me as so open-ended that it would really not satisfy anybody in the audience. So I was always trying to think of what kind of an ending to put on this. I first read the story in 1980 and had been thinking about it for a while. I did not come up with this on my own. There is a passage in Stephen King's story in that last chapter. It says, and I'm paraphrasing badly, albeit, but it says, we're hearing David's thoughts as he's driving in this car. There are three bullets left in this gun and there are four of us in this car. And if worse comes to worse, I'll figure a way out for myself. So King's character is weighing the worst-case scenario. And I seized upon that because I thought, okay, well, let's take, if we're going to make a horror movie based on a Stephen King story, let's take Steve's most horrible, dour, and darkest thought and follow it out to its logical conclusion. And that's where the idea for the ending came from. Indeed, it is in the original text. It is really from Stephen King, although he himself didn't realize it until I read that line back to him. And in doing this scene... Well, you can see the amazing work that my actors are doing. This is a car full of stunningly talented people. I love what they're doing. It may be one of my favorite scenes that I've directed. I love how it plays out in looks and glances and pauses and silences. Hunter, my editor, and I spent a long time tweaking this. And the actors were just sensational. I love how their thoughts are all just drifting off into their own different places in these last moments. Very powerful stuff. I had cleared the soundstage that day, a very minimal crew. I didn't want a bunch of people standing around while this was going on. And we were trying to get into this frame of mind. It's quite an emotional state, as you can imagine, that an actor has to get through considering imminent mortality, letting go of life. So it was delicate, tricky stuff. I always knew that ending was a risk even when I was adapting the story. I'd had it in mind for a long time. Steve King would tease me from time to time because he knew the movie needed an ending. So on a phone call or in an email, he'd, every once in a while he'd say, so have you thought of something yet? I said, I think I have, Steve, but I really want you to read it. So I never told him what the ending was intended to be. And I sent him the script, and he read it cold, and he sent me an email that I treasure where he said, wow, that's one hell of an ending. I'm sorry I didn't think of it because I would have done it if I had thought of it. And he also said, I think every generation, this is Steve King, he said every generation needs a movie like Night of the Living Dead where nothing turns out well for anybody at the end, where everybody dies. And I knew I had Stephen King's approval on this ending, so I knew I was on solid ground. Of course, not everybody dies. Our main character, David, doesn't. And I'll talk about that in just a moment as the end credits begin to roll. Come on! Now, coming up here, we're going to be doing a very interesting transition. Sometimes in production terms, you have to do some hopefully clever stuff. Here, we're still on a soundstage where Tom is acting his heart out here on a soundstage. At a certain point, we needed to transition to an exterior, which was back on that military base that I told you about earlier in the film where we were on location. There's a tank testing track in the woods that we needed to transition to. And there's the first shot of it. That's actually an exterior. Behind Tom, now we're back onto the soundstage. Come on! Come on! 
And when we cut back to that exterior, we had to fog up the entire road there, which was very hard to control. This was a very tricky shot to get with the tank coming out of the mist. This shot here from behind Tom on location, one of the things we hadn't anticipated is how hard it would be for the guy driving the tank to see where the heck he was going and hope that the mist that we'd laid out over the road that Daryl Pritchett and his crew had laid out would start to clear at just the right moment. This is why you don't shoot mist outside if you can avoid it because it does, it blows away. Well, we captured this in a slow motion shot and we got really lucky because that was the perfect shot. Everything happened right there in that moment and that was very lucky. Here's Melissa McBride here as the lady who walked out of the supermarket to get home to her kids. This, by the way, was Jeffrey DeMunn's idea to have this character here riding by in the truck of refugees. He came up to me a few days after she had done her amazing scene in the market and said, wow, that lady was really good. Have you considered using her at the end of the movie as one of the people going by? And I love the idea. That super cool flamethrower, by the way, was constructed for us by Daryl Pritchett and Sons, Casey primarily, out of components purchased at Home Depot, which frightens me on all kinds of levels. And Daryl's other son, Corey, was actually the flamethrower operator in that shot. Now, this final shot coming up, the big glory crane shot at the end of the movie, we had minimal resources here, as we did with the rest of the film. We had two little rented tanks, two little British tanks you saw coming through the mist. I made them look a lot bigger by using telephoto lenses. Aside from that, we had a few Humvees and a few open-top troop carriers. The rest is all digitally added, all enhanced through the magic of special effects. Uh, corner of your screen there on the right, and that's a digital tank. There's a real troop carrier and a real troop carrier. You see three Humvees there, three Jeeps, one of those is digital, and the rest, all the tanks behind them, are all digital in this shot. The fires, the smoke, the helicopters, they took our extras and replicated them to make it look like they were even more of them stretching off to the horizon. All that stuff was done by Cafe FX, and Everett Burrell said that they felt it was the trickiest shot in the entire movie for them to get right, but they did it just beautifully. Getting back for just one moment to the issue of David living, just as a parting thought, our main character who lives. It is a bit of a Rod Serling touch. It is a bit of a Twilight Zone sort of twist feel to it. And I have to admit that Rod Serling was an enormous influence on me as a writer. I grew up watching those wonderful things that he wrote and being quite affected by them. And uh, I think that's where the instinct comes from. I feel like the main character had to live here. He had to be Job. He had to be the one that karma dumps on, that fate puts through the ringer. It's not unlike the character that Tom Hanks played in The Green Mile. The decent man who does the hard thing has to make the hard decisions. It's always coming from a good place. He's always trying to do the right thing. But karma screws him in the end. Somebody has to pay the price. The debt lands on somebody's head. As Mrs. Carmody says earlier in the movie, the bill is due. It must be paid. And in a weird way, she winds up being correct. She winds up being right. Because once the sacrifice is made, the Abraham-like sacrifice, the mist goes away. So maybe she was right all along. And I think that's kind of a provocative bit of storytelling. And if everybody had died, then that element would be missing. And ultimately, the story would have no real weight. It would just be shock value. 
Here I think it's shock value, but with some real intention and follow through. Well, I see we've come to the end of the commentary. How wonderful. Those of you who've heard my other commentaries, particularly the Green Mile, will know that I spent about nine months on and off recording that one. Well, this one, we spent four days, which is incredibly fast for me. Not for other directors, apparently. They get in and out in an afternoon, but four days seems like some kind of record for me, personal best, kind of like the movie, very much in the spirit of shoot fast, shoot fast, go, go, go. I hope you enjoyed it nonetheless, and I want to thank you for listening in and hearing me babble for two hours, and I really will leave you with this thought, just thanking again everybody who took part in the making of the movie, cast and crew. You can look at every single name on the screen as it goes by because they all made a big contribution and I thank them all and I thank you for being here.